How did Jeff Bezos realize you could sell anything on the internet? Why did Bill Gates create Control-Alt-Delete? How did Synchronized Swimming prepare Christine Lagarde for international politics? What made Bob Iger bet big on Marvel? And what inspired Diane von Furstenberg to create the wrap dress? On The David Rubenstein Show, peer-to-peer conversations, I uncover the untold stories of the world's most successful leaders. Listen now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to For the Ages, a history podcast presented by the New York Historical Society and hosted by David Rubenstein. Join us as he deftly explores the rich and complex history of the United States with some of the nation's foremost historians and creative thinkers, because history matters. Hello, I'm David Rubenstein, and I'm going to talk today with Jonathan Freeland about the second part of his book, The Escape Artist, The Man Who Broke Out of Auschwitz to Warn the World. Thank you very much again for continuing this conversation with us, Mr. Friedland. My pleasure. Good to be with you. When we finished the first part of our conversation, they were preparing to escape. Did other people in the camp know that they were thinking of this? And did they get assistance from others? Or were they not telling anybody because they were afraid somebody might turn them in? Well, the young Walter Rosenberg and Fred Wetzler, his friend, they they were absolutely scared of that. And they kept the circle of trust, if you like, down to the very, very tightest possible group. Uh, They told next to nobody that they were planning. The tiniest handful of people who had to know, uh, partly because of the way they uh, planned their escape, physically it required at least one or two people who weren't them, uh, partly because of the, it involved a hiding place that had to be closed and it had to be closed from the outside. So there were, you know, by my count, at least three people who knew, but otherwise nobody. And one thing they were very, very careful to do is they did not discuss with anybody, including with each other, their escape route because they worried that if they confided their escape route to another prisoner, that person under torture might reveal how and where they'd gone. And they didn't want anyone to know that. And so incredible as it may sound, they kept that even from each other until they were actually out and then doing it. Okay. So they decided to do this. They, in effect, hide in a certain way that we won't go through the details of which. And ultimately, they have to hide for a certain period of time for, I think it's three days. Three days and three nights. That's right. Right. If anybody were to escape, the Nazis would, I think they would look for them in a certain area for three days and three nights. And after three days and three nights, the all-out look for them would, would stop. Is that right? Well, this is the bit I'm trying not to give away because okay. I, want, right. I don't okay. want to do a spoiler okay. on my own book. <laughs> okay. All right. So ultimately, they escape. And then when they escape, they go together into the woods and the mountains and the rivers and so forth. Is that right? That's right. Getting out of Auschwitz obviously was unbelievably difficult. But then, as Walter was saying later life, you know, then our troubles began. Because once you're out of Auschwitz, you're in Nazi-occupied Europe, Nazi-occupied Poland. And as Walter would put it in later life, uh, we had no map, no compass, no friends. Uh, you know, Soviet prisoners who escape, Polish prisoners might have resistance networks on the outside. 
They didn't have that. So they did embark, as you say, on this route to get out in which they had to cross rivers and mountains and forests and marshland. They only moved in dead of night. They didn't risk being seen during the day. They had to forage for food. They had no allies or help. They didn't have any documentation or or maps or navigation. They just relied on their own wits to make it to the border with Slovakia, their home country. That's where they were determined to get to, to cross into Slovakia so that they could then, this was their plan, make contact with the remnant Jewish community of Slovakia. And we should just say a word about their motive. Because we take you back to that point I was making when Rudy was working on the ramp, on the railway platform, he became so sure that the people who were arriving had no idea uh, of what fate awaited them. He realised that their ignorance was a crucial ingredient for the Nazi killing machine. It was what enabled it to operate smoothly. And therefore, he concluded that the only way to throw sand in the gears of this killing machine was to somehow tear through that veil of ignorance in which the Jewish arrivals in Auschwitz were shrouded. It meant somebody had to tell them what fate awaited them at Auschwitz. And Rudy had decided, with a tremendous sort of confidence of youth, that that person should be him. And that was why he was so determined, not just to get out to save his own skin, that was almost secondary for him and Fred Wetzler. They were determined to reach the last Jews of Europe and to tell them, do not get on those trains, because if you do, this is the fate that awaits you at the other end. Now, he had a very good capacity for numbers, as you point out. And he had a good capacity for language as well. How many, he spoke four languages or so? Uh, I think by my reckoning, it's seven or eight All right. uh, at that stage. And you point out in your book that sometimes he had to sleep at places where, you know, he didn't really know what was there. And then I think if I got it right, one day he wakes up and he sees he's at a place where the SS is having kind of a, a outing or some type. Where it's the, the Hitler Youth, actually, David. Okay, the Hitler <laughs> yeah. Youth. Okay. He, he, he finds himself in a place, they both do, they find themselves where Hitler Youth are being drilled in songs and dr- okay. uh, and marching and so on. That's where they managed to sleep for the night. So, okay, he has a capacity for numbers. So therefore, what he's done is he he memorizes the numbers of people that are coming to Auschwitz how many are there? And he does that so that when he is able to tell people what is there, he actually had, can have some real numbers. It's not just, guess what I saw kind of thing. Is that right? That's completely right. He knows, and I think it's great self-awareness, he knows that he's very young and that people, they might not take his word for it, age 17, 18, 19 by the time he escapes. So he sets about, once he's had that realisation on the railway platform that knowledge is what the Jews of Europe lack, he commits himself to memorising every single transport he witnesses. It's a number some 300 transports by the end. And by memorise, what I mean is the date the point of origin, the number of cars on each train, an estimated number of people in each car. And he gives each one of these transports a number, not just a random number that he's picked himself, but the number allocated to those prisoners who were on those trains, but then selected for hard labour and slave labour and work. The numbers, indeed, that would be tattooed on the arms of the people taken off those transports and also worn on their uniform. It meant he could look at a number 
of any prisoner in Auschwitz when he was there and immediately tell them the date and the place of origin of the transport that had brought that person to Auschwitz. It was an astonishing feat of memory. I toyed actually with calling this book not The Escape Artist, but The Memory Man, because it was a kind of freakish memory that he had. But he was able to use it to pour out when he eventually does make contact with the remnant Jewish community of Slovakia. He is able to, in effect, dictate the data of death to the people, the Slovak Jewish leaders who write down every word he tells them. He and Fred together are able to tell them chapter and verse, date, time and numbers of the transports of Jews that have come into Auschwitz with, by his estimate, 90 to 95% uh, being gassed to death. The two of them are together the entire escape. They never separate. Is that right? That's right. All right. So eventually, when they get to Slovakia, they can tell people there in the Jewish community, here's what we saw, and a report is written. That's right. It's, it's 32 page single space report, typed up version of their verbatim dictation, really, okay. uh, where they're giving the, the facts, the fullest account yet of Auschwitz that at that time had ever existed. Okay. So if this was a Hollywood story, at this point, after the great escape occurs, they get to uh, Slovakia and then they give this information. The way Hollywood scriptwriters might do this and say, okay, now the world knows about it. This is great. And where all the problems are going to be solved. But that's not actually what happened. What happened is the opposite, practically. Can you describe what happens when they get this report into the hands of the British government, in the hands of the US government? Why people don't say, thank you for letting us know about this. We didn't know about this. Now that we know about it, we're going to do something about it. Why did that not occur? Well, that was a question that would possess Grip Walter, uh, who became Rudolf Verber, by the way, at this point, for the rest of his life. Just on his name, he's obviously, he and Fred Wetzler are both wanted men once they've escaped Auschwitz. Reproduced in my book is the actual, uh, as it were, arrest warrant, the kind of bulletin sent out by the SS saying these are wanted men. They then had to have pseudonyms and false papers. Uh, Walter Rosenberg becomes Rudolf Verber, impeccable Czech name, and he likes the name and he keeps with it for the rest of his life. The report they've written is typed up, it's 32 pages. It then, of course, has to go on a journey, a kind of escape of its own. You can't just press send like you would now and it's published. It has to be passed hand to hand in secret across borders through occupied Europe, through the hands of diplomats and resistance fighters and priests and journalists and so on, until eventually, as you say, it reaches the desks of Winston Churchill in London, Franklin Roosevelt in Washington, and the Pope in Rome. And at that point, as you say, Rudy himself, but also I think anyone observing the story would hope, the world would leap into action. It's certainly what Rudy thought. Instead, the, the report runs into several obstacles. One of them is prejudice. There is anti-Semitism in London and in Washington, where, in the words of a British official who I quote in the document says, you have to allow for a certain degree of Jewish exaggeration when looking at this report. Another says, we spent too long already on these wailing Jews. Another official in Washington says, this is too Jewish an account. We need something less 
Semitic, if we are, to act on this information. So there is prejudice. There's also a practical problem. Bombing Auschwitz or bombing the railway lines, and that by then has become the request that has been attached to this report by Jewish leaders uh, who have who've had the report passed to them. They attach, you know, paperclip on the cover, a message to Roosevelt and Churchill saying, if Auschwitz is, as these young men describe, a factory of death, then take out the conveyor belt, namely the railway tracks. Let's remove those by bombing them. That doesn't happen. The Royal Air Force in London consider the proposal. Churchill puts it to them and they say, look, we bomb by night. This job would have to be done by day. See what the Americans say. Maybe they can do it. It goes over to the Americans. The Americans talk about it. And in the end, the word comes from Roosevelt that the trouble with doing this, if we did it, is that Jews would, some Jews, but as, as if, as almost as collateral damage, would be killed by falling American bombs from the sky. And therefore, we, the Americans, would, as he put it, be implicated in this whole horrid business, this horrible business. And therefore, nothing happens in terms of military action. And even the process of while they're debating this and papers and memoranda and minutes of meetings are going back and forth, the killing rate in Auschwitz has stepped up at this point because there is a new target Jewish community in the sights of the Nazis, namely the Jews of Hungary. And the killing rate steps up so that 12 to 15 thousand Jews are being murdered in Auschwitz every single day while leaders and officials and others in Washington and London are passing pieces of paper to each other. That is one big part of the story that would account for why Rudolf Werber in later life was so unforgiving of those who had failed to pass on his warning. So you point out in your book that the Hungarian Jewish community is somewhat skeptical of what this report says, and that in fact, some Hungarian Jewish community leaders don't take it seriously enough. And as a result, I think about 400,000 Hungarian Jews do go to concentration camps, Auschwitz or elsewhere, but several hundred thousand, I think 200,000 Hungarian Jews are able to not go to the concentration camps. These are from the rural parts of Hungary, is that right? Or how did some people not go to the camps? Well, let's just unpack that because it's a crucial part of the story. So his warning does reach the de facto leader of Hungarian Jewry, a man called Reju Kastner, who does not pass on that warning. We can debate the reasons why he doesn't. It is still a hugely contested episode, but he does not pass on the warning. And the result is that those Jews in the provinces, in the rural areas, get on those trains without the information that Rudy so desperately wanted them to have. Uh, they get on those trains at that accelerated rate of twelve to 15,000 a day. And that is why in a 56-day period, just less than two months, 437,000 Jews from Hungary are sent to Auschwitz and to their deaths. But the report does finally make its way into the hands of somebody who does do the right thing, a journalist, a British journalist at that, 
Walter Garrett in Zurich gets the report. It has finally been smuggled its way to him. He realises it is the scoop of the century and the story is published in late June of 1944. Once it's out and once it's public, then Roosevelt and the Pope both, perhaps because it's now public, act on it and they issue, in effect, a kind of ultimatum to the leader of Hungary, the regent of Hungary, saying, you have been complicit in the deportation of all these Jews. And as Roosevelt says, if we end up winning the war, which is looking very likely by late June 44, we will hold those who were complicit to account, meaning you'll be on trial for war crimes. The Pope issues a plea. He talks about saving these unfortunate souls. He doesn't bring himself to use the word Jews. Together, the plea from the Pope and Roosevelt has enough of an impact on the leadership in Hungary, who are at that point under Nazi occupation, they nevertheless order the halt of the deportation of Jews just in time for the Jews of Budapest, the capital, to not be put on those trains. And including in one case, a a trainload of those Jews is on its way to Auschwitz and literally turns around and goes back to Budapest. 200,000 Jews who would have been deported then are therefore not. And that is as a result of a series of diplomatic moves, the first and most important of which is the Werber-Wetzler report. That is why I say Rudolf Werber and Wetzler between them can be credited with the saving of 200,000 Jewish lives. And it's why I say Rudolf Erber is one of the towering figures of this period who deserves to rank alongside Primo Levi and Frank Oscar Schindler as one of the most significant figures who should shape our understanding of the Shoah and the Holocaust. Now, at that time, weren't the Nazis in control of Hungary? And why did they um, allow people to voluntarily say, I don't want to get on the trains. Why didn't they force them to go on the trains? Oh, no, they absolutely did force them to get on the trains. There was no volunteering involved. The point is, it was the leader of Hungary itself, not the leader of the Jewish community. Right. The leader of the Hungary himself, the regent, Admiral Miklos Horty, who was the ruler of Hungary, albeit right. under Nazi occupation, who issued an edict saying the deportations must stop. He was worried Roosevelt would brand him a war criminal okay. if he didn't. The reason why that's so significant, by the way, is it means that the puppet rulers of occupied Europe, who would say afterwards, well, the Nazis were determined there was nothing we could do, there were things they could do. If they defied the Nazi instructions, as Haughty did, the deportations could stop to the point where a train on its way to Auschwitz could be turned yeah. around. And that shows you there weren't just not enough German Nazi boots on the ground. They relied on the collaborating uh, regimes. And if those regimes refused to collaborate, well, they could make a very big difference. So after World War II, Anne Frank's diary becomes public. It's very well known. A play is made about it. Primo Levi's book is well known. He becomes pretty well known figure as well. Oscar Schindler, after the movie by Steven Spielberg, is known much better. These become very well known public figures. Why is Rudy Verba not that well known after World War II? Why isn't he being credited after World War II with saving all these lives? Why is that not the case? It's a great question. And my book is a big part of, I hope, 
correcting this oversight by history. You're quite right. He isn't and wasn't as famous as those people. Why is that? He wrote his memoir in 1963. The facts were there. I think it's this. He was not content to say the evildoers in this story were Hitler and the Nazis, and everyone else was on the side of good and did wonderful things. Instead, his story pointed a very discomforting or even accusing figure at others. So we've talked about how the British and the Americans didn't do enough even once they knew. But Rudy was particularly exercised by this figure, this man, Reju Kastner, the Jewish leader of the Hungarian Jewish community, who, for his own reasons, again, which we could get into, did not pass on Verber's warning. Rudy was scathing about that. And that idea of a Holocaust survivor in the 1960s saying that there was a Jewish leader who had failed, who had acted badly, Rudy went further, uh, who had acted sort of immorally in the estimation of his most uh, severe critics. That was not a message I think people wanted to hear. For one thing, Reju Kastner had made his life in Israel. He had was part of the political establishment. He was part of the Labour Party in Israel, which was then the established governing party. And people who made accusations against Reju Kastner made themselves unpopular with the new generation who were building a new country in Israel. And therefore, the sheer sort of discomfort that was provoked by Rudy's story meant that he was somebody who was an awkward witness. And I spoke to people even in Vancouver, Canada, where Rudy made his post-war life for the last three decades of his life. They didn't even invite Rudy to annual Holocaust commemorations because, said one organiser, you never knew when Rudy was going to descend into accusations and rage. He was an uncomfortable witness who would say tough, difficult things. And slowly and steadily, the invitations dried up and people didn't want to know. And that was why he was able to be forgotten. Some people deliberately sort of tried to write him out of the story. And this book is an attempt to write that wrong. What was his career? He was a biochemist. He was a scientist. Just like you said before, he had this extraordinary talent for numbers and figures and rigor and reason. And he was a rather able uh, and accomplished scientist. So he, he ended his career as associate professor of biochemistry at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. But he was also still testifying to the truth of what he had seen. And he was a regular witness in war crimes trials in Frankfurt and elsewhere, and even appeared in a celebrated trial of a Holocaust denier who was on the stand in Toronto, Canada in 1985. He was there as a star witness, uh, always bearing witness to the truth of what he had seen, even to those who didn't want to hear it. Now, you point out that he wrote his own autobiography about this. And it's interesting, I have observed over the years that People in the United States and Europe did not want to relive the Holocaust in the late 1940s or 50s. And so much of the Holocaust literature really begins around the early 1960s, mid-60s. It's probably because people, I, my assumption is, they didn't want to talk about it anymore. They just wanted to get on with their lives. And so it's interesting that he did this incredible thing, but he doesn't write about it until 1963. And I think the Anne Frank story really becomes better known in the 60s as well. Are you surprised that he waited that long to write his autobiography? 
Well, it's it's part of a wider phenomenon, as you say. I mean, people could come at this two ways. Some say, as you just did, that it's because they didn't really want to talk about it. They wanted to get on with their lives. And there's some truth to that in Rudy's case. He was a young man, very young. He was 19 when the war ended. He had to rush through, fast track the education that he'd missed, barreling through university education, becoming a scientist, getting a doctorate in sort of a quarter of the time anyone else would have done that. But on the other hand side, there were some who did want to talk. And the problem was people didn't want to listen. Many Holocaust survivors will tell you that, that they were ready to talk, but not many people wanted to hear it, especially where Rudy was post-war, which was in communist Czechoslovakia, where people really didn't want to hear that the Jews themselves had been a very specific target of the Nazi machine. And that message was uncomfortable and was one reason why Rudy would mount yet another escape, an escape from communist Czechoslovakia, which that story is told in the book. So it's true that he had to be prompted to write this memoir. And one of the prompts, as it was, I think, for the some of the other testimonies that came out in the 60s, was the trial of Adolf Eichmann in 1961 in Jerusalem, 61-62, a, a turning point event because suddenly people did get interested and were ready to hear the testimony of survivors who until that point had often kept right. their experience uh, to themselves. So I'll conclude by saying that I, this is an incredibly interesting story. I thoroughly enjoyed learning about this. I didn't know about it before. When I worked in the White House as a young man for President Carter, a young woman on our staff said, why don't we have a Holocaust memorial in the United States? And to my astonishment, we didn't have one. Uh, President Carter proposed one in the late 1970s. It opened in 1993. But interestingly, in the 1970s and 60s, there was no Holocaust memorial in the United States. Now there is one, of course. Well, it's a great book. I enjoyed reading it. I kind of read it in one sitting because I couldn't put it down. So I congratulate you on a really exciting recounting of this incredible life. And uh, thank you for giving us this time today. It's been my pleasure to talk about it with you, David. Thank you very much. On behalf of the New York Historical Society, thank you for joining us for another episode of For the Ages, a history podcast hosted by David Rubenstein. We hope you enjoyed it and come back for more. Thanks for your support. You can share your thoughts at public.programs at nyhistory.org.